0: Welcome to The Scoop on Sunday, my name is Thomas Copeland, we're live for the next two hours on Queen's Radio and on Facebook Live as well, so do stay with us. A brand new Covid testing centre is coming to Queen's for asymptomatic participants. We've been chatting to Pro Vice-Chancellor, Professor Stuart Elborn all about the pilot scheme that will be located in the Whitla Hall, right in the middle of the QUB campus. Stormont has agreed yet more COVID-19 restrictions, only a week after chaos erupted in the executive, over blocking those very same restrictions. We're going to break it all down for you on the show tonight and chat about how the next few weeks are going to look and whether the right decision has been made. The QUB Debating Society held an abortion debate this week. Pro-choice groups at QUB protested against the debate and its participants, which included former frontbench MP Anne Whittacombe. We'll have representatives from the Debating Society and from Project Choice on the show at around 8pm. Also this week, Jeremy Corbyn was reinstated into the Labour Party, having been thrown out for his response to the findings of a report on anti-Semitism. However, he was blocked by Keir Starmer from rejoining the Parliamentary Labour Party. He's half in, half out. We'll be chatting with figures in the Labour movement about Corbyn anti-Semitism and where the Labour Party goes from here. After hundreds of thousands of sexual images of Irish women were discovered this week online, we're going to chat about the difficult topic of revenge porn. What it is, how it happens, and how it can be stopped. Plus, we've got all your favourite segments too. A look at what's trending this week, we've got some sports updates, a thought for the week from Dr Keith Breen and some chat about the scoop shows this week. It's all here, it's all happening on The Scoop on Sunday. But we want to hear from you too. Send us your questions, send us your comments over the next two hours, and we'll do our very best to get them on the air. Here's how you can get in touch with us.
1: Contact us now. Text 07848866580. Email thescoop at queensradio.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter.
0: Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Now, on Friday night, QUB announced to students that it was launching an on-campus asymptomatic testing pilot program. Just before the show tonight, I chatted to Pro Vice-Chancellor Professor Stuart Elborn. Here is what he had to say. Uh, Professor, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, what do you talk us through this pilot programme? It will have dropped into the inboxes of many students over the last couple of days. Could you tell us how this is going to work and how students can make the most of this testing programme?
2: I, I will indeed. Uh, just to give a, a brief background, uh, we've been working on this for about four weeks with uh, the Department of Health and Social Care uh, in England. Uh, as this is part of a a series of feasibility studies in a number of universities uh, across uh, the four nations. And uh, we uh, have volunteered to be one of the kind of first starter universities. We'll be the first in the devolved nations. And the purpose of this is to uh, use uh, the student experience in universities as one of the first uh, rollouts of... Uh, asymptomatic mass testing so looking for people who don't have symptoms uh, but who may be uh, carriers of the virus uh, to try to figure out if we can identify those individuals and then provide the support for them to self-isolate. Uh, And the universities and students were identified because uh, being an asymptomatic carrier is particularly common in young people uh, of uh, the age of university students. So we've been working with a team uh, from England uh, with uh, two other universities who are up and running in the last two weeks in De Montfort in Leicester and uh, Suffolk University but also working with Cambridge and Durham who have had asymptomatic testing going for some time uh, off their own bat.
0: And, and this, so programme, this programme starts on, on yeah. Monday, Professor. Is it exclusively for students or is it open to the wider public as well?
2: Uh, no, it's not open to the wider public. It's it's just open to uh, the university community, but we're starting with students. Um, we've set this up to, over the next couple of weeks, just incrementally increase uh, the number of tests that we can do. Partly that's because we've, we've had to develop a workforce because it does require people to help with the tests, even though uh, staff and students will do the test themselves in terms of the swab, but they'll then hand the swab over and uh, a number of operatives, many of whom will be also students. Uh, many of our students have volunteered to work in the facility. Uh, To actually do what's called a lateral flow test. So we'll start with students, but we will then look at use cases uh, to involve uh, members of staff as well. And what kind of capacity,
0: Uh, Professor, if you don't mind me asking, in in the FAQs that that you have published about this, it does say that you should be able to process 6,000 tests per week by the end of December. What about yep. between now and and students going home, between now and the end of term? I mean, in the next week and two weeks, how, how much capacity is there per week?
2: So we, we have some flex in the capacity. We're, we're, we're aiming to do at least 1,500 tests in the first week. Uh, but if, if there's demand uh, for more tests... We will be able to accelerate that uh, by accelerating the training of, of some of the uh, students who will be operatives uh, in the centre. So we think we can respond to need. Uh, and so far, we've had uh, around 400 uh, people book tests between now and the 10th of December. Uh, so that's a, a kind of first 24-hour uh-huh. booking and we'll try to respond to make sure everyone who, who does uh, feel that it would help them to have a test or the two tests, if they're returning home, that we can deliver that for them. And
0: can students, Professor, I know this is a a, a a scheme that you're hoping to continue into second semester. Can students book multiple times, you know, if they wanted to get tested once every two, once in every three weeks? Is that open to them or it, will there be a limit to how many times an individual student can can decide to use the testing programme?
2: If uh, if we can get this right, we will be uh, inviting students then to take a regular test weekly or two weekly uh, so that they're reassured that they're negative uh, and similarly for staff. Uh, we still have to work out the details of those because we've got to match capacity with need, but we also have to make sure we're uh, following the public health guidelines depending on uh, the situation and as we've learned over the last couple of months those change quite regularly so we, we, we hope to, we hope to have a, a an agile and responsive uh, setup uh, particularly to to help those students who have uh, practical classes or clinical skills if they're in the healthcare uh, streams uh, that, that that they're face-to-face education, for example, can be supported.
0: Uh, Let me ask you this. You mentioned earlier that this was a a lateral flow test. That is distinct from the the PCR tests, which uh, are are those run by the NHS if you have symptoms. What's the difference, if you don't mind me asking, Professor, between those two tests?
2: Okay. uh, Scientifically, the PCR looks for a, a piece of the gene, the RNA of the virus. The lateral flow is looking for the antigen, the spike protein, actual antigen. So they're they're measuring slightly different things, but the advantage of the antigen test is that it is highly confirmatory if it's positive that you have active virus uh, in in the sample. Uh, It's not quite as sensitive as PCR, uh, but that has some disadvantages and some advantages and that's why we are recommending having two tests uh, as the uh, confirmation uh, that you're negative and safe to to go home for Christmas, knowing that you're you're negative for uh, coronavirus. So the the PCR
0: test, which is the NHS test, is that uh, equally as reliable as the lateral flow test?
2: It's yes, they're, they're both reliable tests. They just measure. Uh, slightly different things, and they're both very specific. So if it's positive, we can be absolutely reassured it's positive. The lateral flow device is a little bit less sensitive. So it it, it is uh, not quite as sensitive as a PCR, but if you... Do two tests, it's almost as sensitive as the PCR test in terms of picking up low levels of coronavirus in a particular... So it's fair to
0: say that the lateral flow test isn't as effective, which is why you're asking students as part of this programme that they have to complete two separate tests. Is that a fair assessment?
2: Yes, two two tests are very effective. One test is is still pretty effective, but to be really sure, uh, two tests is recommended. Uh, Let let me
0: ask you this then, Um, in your own comms email that went out to students you recognize the fact that many international students who have come to Queen's University will need a PCR test if when they're returning home they're they're asked to provide it and many countries in the world are asking that returning citizens have a PCR test and you say this type of test is not being offered as part of the program. Um, uh, Here's what I want to ask, you've directed many international students to private clinics where they have to pay a a minimum of £195 for these PCR tests in order to get home. Uh, Does it not not seem that the university encouraged many international students to come to campus with a face-to-face teaching commitment? Why then is it fair for the university to ask those international students to pay up to uh, more than £195 for a PCR test and then not offer that test as part of this pilot programme?
2: Uh, so we are in fact supporting our students financially to get the t- get a PCR test where that's required uh, through uh, one of the private providers in Belfast. So that that is um, uh, currently available for international students.
0: So they don't um, have to pay for that test. Does the university no. pay all the money for that test?
2: Yes. Okay. Uh, and we're support. And in, for ch- for students going back to China, for example. They're now also required to have a, an antibody test in addition, uh, and we've arranged for that to be uh, facilitated for those who wish to go back for the holiday season. Uh, the, we, we, with the lateral flow device, this is part of a of a feasibility new technology initiative, uh, and uh, it's it's very difficult to provide the two tests uh, simultaneously. Although we're providing. For the first 200 students, they will be asked to have a PCR test as well so we can have some further validation of the lateral flow uh, device uh, technology for the the wider uh, good. And this test that we're we're delivering in Queen's is the same test that the Minister of Health, uh, Minister Swan, is currently negotiating with uh, the Department of Health through Minister Hancock. Uh, to do further mass testing uh, in Northern Ireland. So we're testing out the device and the system to try to do this at a larger scale in, in many other sectors.
0: Is it fair to say, Professor, that this isn't a Queen's initiative? It's an initiative by the government that Queen's has volunteered to be part of.
2: Absolutely, yes. That, that's the, that was the initial conversation. But we could see the benefit for our students uh, who wish to participate in this to have two negative tests before they go home uh, for the holiday season.
0: Absolutely. Um, before I ask you uh, about next semester, and I don't want to keep you too long, what else is the university doing, Professor, to ensure that the kind of outbreaks that we saw in Queen's earlier on this term won't happen again when students come back to campus, if they do so, next semester? Mm-hmm. What measures have been put in place to ensure though, that any outbreak or the outbreaks that we saw earlier this term
2: won't repeat themselves? So we've, um, we've, we've looked very carefully at the uh, events at the beginning of term and been very uh, reassured that, that we can't see any, any occasion where either a student or member of staff was likely to have been uh, infected on campus during an educational event. Most of the transmission events have occurred either in people's homes or in hospitality uh, when people are together in larger numbers. And Queen's so we, Accommodation. I think, and Queen's Accommodation. Uh, I, that's the same as a home at okay. f- for us. So uh, we've also now got very, uh, a very well-organised and well-staffed uh, tracing facility within the university so uh, students who become positive, we can trace uh, and... Uh, hopefully identify uh, individuals who are positive and with the lateral flow device service we'll keep some of that um, capacity if we are concerned that there might be an outbreak let's say in in elms so we can go in very quickly and know within one hour if if uh, any of the contacts of let's say an individual who goes positive, has any evidence of infection. So we're going to be able to do some outbreak management. Why wasn't that,
0: you mentioned a tracing programme there, why wasn't that in place for the start of this semester?
2: Well, it it was in place. I think we had to then uh, agilely flex up the capacity within that, and we had had really... Compared to other universities, the, the number of people who became positive in Queen's was actually relatively small. We were in the bottom 25% in terms of numbers of students. Uh, but we we all were trying to figure out how to do this. And uh, I think the way we've been able to flex up that uh, uh, contact tracing process uh over really what was a couple of weeks, has got us into a good place now where we can identify uh, people who are positive uh, it, and then. Manage it, it's very positive
0: to be in the good place now, Professor, but it would be fair to say, therefore, that at the start of this term, that tracing programme wasn't sufficient.
2: Uh, I mean, that's the, the implication the volume, of what you're saying. The volumes were, were challenging uh, and we, uh, I think, uh, somewhat underestimated the number of students who might become positive over a very short period of time, but again, it's all—it's for all of us to, uh, I think, work together around this, uh, and for for students, staff, and university to uh, to manage this carefully together. Certainly,
0: and I, I think it should be said that the university should be applauded in areas where it has uh, it improved its 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 response to the pandemic, and this testing program is part of that. The last thing I want to ask you. Uh, professor, is when will you be informing students about their learning for next semester? What is the deadline for telling students whether in January they will be receiving face-to-face teaching uh, or blended learning, so online learning?
2: So our, our position is that that we want to do this very carefully and we certainly do, don't want to overpromise uh, because we don't exactly know what the situation is going to be in January. There are concerns that uh, the Uh, contacts over the festive season will result in increased cases uh, coming through in January Uh, and so we're going to have to be uh, very uh, flexible and agile to respond to the situation as it might develop. So the position we're taking is to start, start as we are at the moment and then incrementally move that up supported by uh, the screening for asymptomatic carriers it it seems to
0: me in some ways professor that uh, you know students are in, in many cases crying out for clarity and the university is always coming back to say well we want to be as flexible as possible at some stage is it not the case that the university just needs to make a call in order to be much more clear to students. Um, here's a great example. Should students in January be coming back to uh, rented accommodation, Queen's accommodation, in Belfast, or should they stay at home? I mean, those are the kind of, those are the kind of dilemmas that they are facing. And it isn't helped with as much understanding as, as is possible when the university says, oh, well, we want to be as flexible as possible. Surely you just need to offer clarity. And if it ends up as being the case that you you went with the wrong call, then so be it.
2: Yeah, so what we've also done is asked schools uh, to to do this communication because different situations may pertain in different parts of the university, uh, particularly, for example, those uh, uh, schools where there's a lot of practical stuff, such as nursing or medicine. Uh, they will do blended learning from, from the beginning because that's what they've been doing and they will try to increase that. It may be in some other subjects where... Uh, doing more online learning has worked very well they may continue to do that for a time until they're confident uh, that they can develop uh, the programs with with the in-person contact but i think for students we we really want to to provide that uh, in-person contact with their teachers but also with with other students and so our aim will be to uh, get that moving as quickly as we can but making sure it's safe for staff and for students as we do that. Uh, I mean, so it's very to be absolutely definite about what we're going to be able to do, but our, our direction of travel is to uh, get as much in-person contact as we can. Certainly, and
0: I don't want to labour the point, uh, Professor, and you've very kindly given up your time and, and, and I, I, I want to, I want to finish soon, but with respect... You know, in the summer of this year, the university was quite happy to offer a direction from the very upper echelons of university management and say that there was a face-to-face campus commitment. And now it seems as if either you regret making that choice and you don't want to overpromise anymore, or you're saying that actually you don't want to lead from the top anymore and you want individual schools to decide what to do.
2: No, we have been very clear that we want to empower schools to do what is the, the best for the students in their area. So, you know, a course in arts and humanity uh, operates quite differently from the School of Nursing or from the School of Medicine, and and Biomedical Sciences because of the nature of uh, the, the teaching and the, the skills that they have to deliver. And what's really important, I think, is that for all students in the university, uh, we, we do what we can to make sure they have the best education we can deliver but to do that safely. And we will have to make decisions often at a local level. And I think during this whole pandemic, we've learned that uh, big decisions that try to cover everything often go wrong. We've got to empower students and their- Would it it be fair uh, to say,
0: Professor, that that face-to-face campus commitment was a big decision that then went wrong?
2: I don't think it went wrong. I think- uh, Well, well, it wasn't deliverable. it was, wasn't deliverable in part because uh, we were asked to stop doing as much face-to-face teaching as we could uh, because of the, uh, the worsening of the situation in Northern Ireland, which has been one of the, the, the most challenging across these islands. Uh, and we, we then responded uh, by uh, moving as much online as was. But you were at, advised the, as opposed to asked, I think is, a, is, yes. is, is fair, but sorry, carry on. So, so I think you know, all of us are learning. None of us got this right completely at all. But I think doing this together with staff and with students uh, to, to ensure that we deliver the best that is possible, I think has been the right thing to do.
0: Uh, thank you very much, Professor, for, for giving your time. We really appreciate it uh, for communicating with students in this way. It's a very valuable thing to do. Uh, I would really encourage everybody to, to make use of the asymptomatic testing program because it will be very useful and, as you say, will provide a lot of reassurance. And it is a, a, you know, a, a very strong point from the university in, in what it's doing for students, so we appreciate that. Thank you for your time, uh, for giving up some time on a Sunday, uh, Professor. It's very much appreciated.
2: Thank you, and we look forward to seeing as many students as possible in the next couple of weeks coming to Whitla Hall for their tests. Thank you, Professor. Thanks, Thomas. That
0: was Pro Vice-Chancellor Professor Stuart Elborn there on the brand new testing centre opening here at QUB. I think a couple of things to pick up from that interview in particular. One of them is clearly still no deadline over when students will find out whether next semester's learning will be online or face-to-face. In the summer, Queen's were quite happy to lead from the top and say that a face-to-face guarantee would be in place and all schools would be abiding by that guarantee. Now, they're saying that the students, are that the the individual schools will make the decisions and they're no no, no longer leading from the top. Another interesting thing in there, Professor Elborn admits that QUB underestimated how many students would get COVID-19 in a short period of time, and implies certainly that the testing programme and the tracing programme that QUB had in place wasn't sufficient to deal with the number of students who got COVID at the beginning of term and the rate at which they got them. So those are two really important points there. But that testing centre opening tomorrow morning at QUB and certainly, uh, that's a place where students can go if they want to get reassurance over um, whether they have COVID before going home to their families at Christmas time. Now, on last week's show, we talked through the political machinations which had taken place at Stormont. Sinn Fein seemed to have changed their minds over easing restrictions, and then the DUP were using a cross community to veto to block some new restrictions. This week, totally new story. And all the executive parties moved to pass a host of new restrictions for the weeks ahead. Just before the show, I chatted to Peter Moore, freelance journalist, all about the roller coaster week up on the hill. Peter, thank you very much for being with us again. Another chaotic week. Why don't you talk us through what happened this week and how we set that in context from the last conversation that we had when we talked to you last Sunday?
3: Yeah, last week, last Sunday, we kind of said it was a hectic week and we didn't think anything would be quite so hectic again. But we were surprised, let's just say. Um, it came to, it was Thursday evening, I'm right in saying, and all these announcements just came out at the drop of a hat at quarter State at night. We kind of thought there might be some word, but we kind of guessed, look, it'll be delayed. We'll not find out till next week. It'll be the same story as ever. But it happened and we found new restrictions will come in from next Friday. So they'll last for a two week period. And it's essentially it's a full lockdown other than schools remaining open. So that pretty much brings us back other than the issue of schools to how we were in March, April and May, really. So like the so churches closed, non-essential retail, pubs, cafes, bars, pretty much anything you can think of other than schools and essential retail will be shut.
0: And what, what was the justification for this before we get on to the politics behind it? what 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 was the medical advice that
3: said this is direction yeah. that we needed to go in? So it all came out medically in terms of Robin Swan, the health minister here. So on Wednesday, he did a press conference at Stormont and he was also at the New Nightingale Hospital in White Abbey. And it kind of hinted, look, we might need more restrictions. the R rate is creeping up. word that could be because of schools maybe. um hospitalizations are still high, the health service could be overwhelmed by Christmas. So that was kind of the context to everything in terms of why these restrictions may be needed. Robin Swan brought a paper to the assembly, sorry, to the executive on Thursday, and from that they acted, and they certainly did act.
0: It, it seems extraordinary because this time last week, Peter, we were having a conversation which went along the lines of: should there be restrictions? Should there not be restrictions? That we were talking about the DUP vetoing further restrictions. Here we are, one week later, and all of the parties in the executive, um, uh, apart from some dissenting voices, but I mean, they unanimous, unanimously passed. New restrictions. Is this yeah, without U-turn? even a vote, yeah. Without even a vote. Is this a U-turn or how is this being characterized?
3: Certainly, ask the DP. They will highly say that it was not a U-turn, but it is seen by many as a U-turn. So it's been very strange because the DP said, this is our red line. We are not going past what we agreed last week. And suddenly this all changed. And there was different speculation. No one knows the real reason in terms of why these changes have been made. But there's word that the DEP came under such fire for using their veto last week. They didn't want to be seen to do that again because that's something that they could have deployed this time against the health minister's proposals. They've got four ministers on the executive. They only need three. They could have easily have deployed that veto, but they decided not to. Um, and maybe it's because the DEP don't want to be seen as the scapegoat in all this. If we eventually got to a blame game where hospitalizations became too high, where we had more excess deaths, then who would the blame lie with? Well, maybe the DUP. And I think that was maybe just too much for them to countenance, really, in terms of all of that. I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Because there are large portions of
0: the population, many of them who would vote DUP anyway. Uh, perhaps they own small businesses. Perhaps they are you know, taxi drivers. Perhaps they run close contact services who wanted to see those restrictions opened up. Um, we will have on the show tonight somebody who has left the DUP over disagreement over this. Has the DUP, in some ways you know, uh, played the the worst of both worlds by going in one direction and then pulling a wee bit
3: of reverse ferret and, uh, and moving in the other direction. It's a really interesting one because, yes, last week you would have thought certainly the DEP will only go in this one direction. But then at the same time, we've seen these efforts this week, which kind of strays away from that. And I think part of it is there's obviously been very positive news of a vaccine or tentatively positive news of a vaccine And it does make it a little bit more palatable to go to these sorts of restrictions. If you can tell the public, look, it's going to be a tough two or three weeks, don't get us wrong, but then hopefully we'll get a vaccine and we'll maybe have mass testing as well. So these restrictions are going to work on an initial basis. And then I think the hope is from the political parties, not just the DUP, that this might have to be one of the last restrictions that we have, the big full lockdown as such, before we can hopefully have that measure of hope, those different sorts of vaccines that we hear all about every week and stuff. So there is two sides to it, really. And what's the reaction been like, Peter,
0: to the new restrictions? So the restrictions that are yeah. coming next week for the next couple of weeks. Has it been
3: positive, negative? What have you been feeling? I think, I think last week I mentioned there was just a bit of anger at the miscommunication of all of this. And to be honest, I think that is a very similar sort of point again, because if you look at the miscommunication side of things, this time last week we were saying, oh, business owners are angry. They don't know what's going on, but at least they know now. But now that's just been repeated all over again, and I think there's going to be anger amongst the business communities. That's just happened all over again, that they opened up on Friday, cafes, barbers, hairdressers, and yet just 12 hours earlier, they were told, look, you're only opening up for a week. And I think business owners will be annoyed at that because it's not just a case of flicking a switch and turning your business back on after being shut for five weeks. It's a bigger case than that. It's ordering in stock. It's supply issues. It's telling your staff when they're working. So I think that's more the angry side of it rather than the actual political and health side of things, maybe.
0: And all that costs a lot of money. And that's one thing. Another thing, I suppose, is that... I mean, we were here chatting last week about the chaos in Stormont. We had people on the show who were saying that it showed that, you know, Stormont wasn't fit for purpose. There have been lots of discussion this week about the way that Stormont is set up and can it Mm. be sustainable? And now we're here a week later and it appears that it was it was all for nothing is that a huge loss in kind of political capital reputational capital when the end result was a continuation in the restrictions as it would have been if we'd you know gone jumped in a time machine and gone back two
3: weeks time political capital is always an interesting issue here yes you can scream about it on twitter you scroll through your feeds and there's anger at politicians here But we've got to look at the wider context of, in terms of politics here, look, there's not going to be an election for, I think it's May 2022, that there is a next Assembly election, general election, not till after that as well. So yes, it's very easy to say we don't like the approach that has been taken, but then do we just go back to the same status quo, as happens in most elections here, with not too much movement in terms of the political plates? And so, yes, there can be anger in this week, but then when the bigger picture is looked at in the grand scheme of things, will politics change here? It's harder to say. Yeah, will the criticism stick? Um, I
0: said earlier on that all of the parties in the executive moved unanimously in favour of these restrictions. Mm. That isn't to say that there were no dissenting voices. Talk us through what was going on with Edwin Poots this week, the agricultural minister. This is
3: a really interesting one. He got himself into a little bit of trouble, just as he has done before in recent months with other sorts of incendiary comments that he's made that have offended some. He got an email, as did many other MLA's installments, um, with a voted expressing their displeasure and anger at all these restrictions that were coming in. And he replied, replying saying that he agreed with the sentiments expressed in that email. The one mistake he made was he did a reply to all function and it went to all of the MLAs all across parliament buildings and landed in their inboxes. And obviously us in the media soon got hold of this statement and everyone jumped upon it. And it's been really interesting because Edwin Poots has previously been a dissenting voice when the initial circuit breaker was agreed. A few days later, he came on talkback on the BBC and was very incendiary about it all. He said he wishes he'd used his veto in terms of this, but yet this time he's expressed his dissatisfaction with these measures. But... There was no veto deployed. The measures weren't blocked. So it's a very interesting sort of split, and it's not necessarily just Edwin Poots who has had this dissenting voice in terms of this. Carl Lockhart was also slightly dissenting, maybe not so much as Edwin Poots, but she posted something on Facebook to say that some were very confused by the rules. Um, Sammy Wilson, the East Antrim MP, he hasn't come out explicitly saying too much, but. On the back of previous statements that he's made, I'm sure he could maybe say similar things. But like I say, no comment as of yet.
0: So severe divisions in the DUP and I suppose uh, across the UK, you're seeing similar kind of conversations. Um, Tell us about what's happening in England now, because over the last couple of days, there have been murmurs that there would be an increase in restrictions. The Sunday papers were briefed that tomorrow Boris would be making another grand announcement. How does what's happening in Northern Ireland leading up to Christmas fit in with the rest of the UK?
3: Yeah, so this is tomorrow. Boris Johnson is expected to outline how England will come out of its four uh, four weeks of restrictions and it's likely to be a kind of tiered system. But how does that affect Northern Ireland? Well, along with the speech tomorrow in terms of all the restrictions that are in place in England, there's going to be a case of what happens next in terms of Christmas. It's only a few weeks away now, it seems. About five weeks away, I think it is, till Christmas. And there's lots of big issues. And it's been something that the DUP has been very vocal about. They very much say, look, we have a lot of people travelling from Great Britain over to Northern Ireland and vice versa. And that's something that Army Imposter tweeted about last night. And all the leaders of the devolved administrations, both in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England, are all discussing this issue and how students will go home particularly relevant for us guys on this radio show but also families as well and how they'll head back home as well so Expect to see more sorts of issues and more sorts of clarity on that sort of devolved nations approach to ensure that Christmas isn't just spoilt for all of us across all parts of the UK.
0: Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed, Peter. Thank you so much for being with us, um, as ever, for giving us an update there on uh, into the minds of those at Stormont. And I know that can't be a pleasant experience for you. (laughs) Just a bit. (laughs) Thanks, Peter. Thank you. That was Peter Moore, freelance journalist, chatting to me just before the show. Now I'm joined in the studio by Johnny Mearns, a former DUP member, and Oshin Donnelly, a quality officer for SDLP Youth. Thank you both for being with me. Why don't we start with you, Johnny? Um, I said former DUP member. Had we been chatting last week, I would have just said DUP member. You've left the DUP. Why did you decide to make that call?
4: Uh, thanks for having me on, Thomas, first of all. Um, so basically, this is something that I've been leading up to, I'd say, for a year. A year now, maybe. Um, it started off the New Decade, New Approach deal. Um, I actually wrote a piece for you uh, basically saying why I supported that, but I knew like, deep down in my heart it didn't really. There was a lot in it I was very against, but I just sort of it kept going along in my head with this idea of the greater good. And I was actually listening to Ryan Hoey, who you had on, saying why he left the Young Conservatives, and I guess it was it's similar. I feel like, unfortunately, the DEP starting to move away from... What I see as traditional unionist values, you know, free markets and th- uh, ensuring that Northern Ireland remains a part of the integral part of the United Kingdom, uh, and then also the conservative side of that of abortion primarily, and I didn't feel like they, you know, um, when, whenever. What,
0: what, c- what was it about then the decision that was made
4: over the last couple of weeks, specifically to do with lockdown, that pushed you yeah, over the edge? So that was I'd say the Strodebrook comes back, as they say. Um, I felt that the div. DF- Gordon Lyons stood up in the assembly about two weeks ago and said that there wasn't enough being done for businesses and the business we need to learn to live with COVID. And then he, along with Arlene, end up give, uh, giving in and allowing another all restrictions to take place. But surely, I mean, the restrictions are designed, Johnny, in order to save people's lives.
0: They're designed in order to reduce the kind of, uh, uh, you know, the pressure on our NHS to reduce the number of beds that are being taken up in our hospitals that are already at a full capacity, It is, is it not the case that it's in the best interest of everybody in the United Kingdom, in, in Northern Ireland, be they Unionist, Nationalist or other, that that we have these restrictions?
4: Um, no, still, I mean, yes, obviously lives are important, that's a blatant point, but um, as Ryan actually alluded to last week, beds... Um, Hospital beds in Northern Ireland have been down by 10% in the last decade, 20% in Belfast. Why don't we look at funding those beds rather than having to fund but we businesses? Could de-
0: Johnny, we could definitely do that. We could look at those beds, but you're not going to fix the problem with the beds between now and Christmas, or between now and Easter, which is the critical time in this pandemic when Problems action needs to, needs to be taken.
4: You're also not going to fix the problem of businesses going bankrupt. You're not going to fix the problem of working class businesses going under, families not being able to afford Christmas families literally going bankrupt, and what, what effect does that have on mental health? Absolutely, families going bankrupt, working-class families not being able to pay for Christmas,
0: Oisin. Um That is partially some of the you know the, the effects that have been alleged by Johnny that this lockdown is, happen, is having. Your party swung in behind it, has been very supportive of continued restrictions. What do you say to people who, who Johnny is talking about, business people uh, who, who can't afford taxi drivers, who can't afford to put food on the table or perhaps buy Christmas presents for
5: their kids this Christmas? I think um, it's in the power of the executive to absolutely support this. In particular, the economy minister, Diane Dodds and the finance minister, Conor Murphy. They have the power to support this. There's the schemes there ready to go to provide support to these businesses. All they need is that uh, initiative from the... But if it weren't, weren't for ministers. the
0: restrictions, if it weren't for mm-hmm. the
5: restrictions that your party has
0: supported, then you know, th- th- this financial stipend wouldn't be required. You, what you're doing is locking down businesses so that they can not earn money in the way that they normally would. How do you justify that?
5: Because, well, we're not in a normal situation. We're in the middle of a global pandemic and we have a, you know, we have a duty to look after our nation's public health, first and foremost, and we need to protect that to keep you know, hospital beds from going over capacity. I think it's still over 100% capacity at the minute. Um, I believe I, uh, the ICU beds are slightly under 100 at the minute, but um, we have a duty to do that. And these restrictions can help, you know, bring the, keep those cases coming down so that by Christmas we might be able to have some sort of relaxation of, of restrictions so people can then go see their family, celebrate Christmas or any other sort of...
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. Johnny, I suppose the, the point that Oshin's making is that there's not a lot of point in protecting the economy if you're not going to protect people's lives first.
4: The, the two go hand in hand. I mean, at the very beginning of the, these lockdowns, <laughs> one in 10 people across the UK said they considered considered uh, self-harm or suicide. That's a big number, if you ask me. Um, and, then, and then if you say, like, protecting people's lives, what, how do you protect people's lives without certain things like the gym and leisure, things that actually boost your health boost your mental health, boost your physical health, and actually would help fight this virus. Only 1.1% of cases recently found have been in gyms such as this, Uh, nearly 20% have been supermarkets, 16% have been schools, 11% have been uh, primary schools, why weren't they shut down then if this is all about lives? But it's not all
0: about, you know, it's not about individual things like gyms. The reason that gyms are shut down is because what it does is it stops people uh, jumping out into their car, going out onto the road. It's it's all about the aggregate, which is to reduce the number of interactions that people have. You could definitely make the case, and anybody could make the case that there are very few incidences in gyms, therefore keep gyms open. But do you not, do you not kind of understand this argument, or what do you say to the argument that in order for it to be effective and to effectively reduce interaction across the board you need to have a policy that goes across the board
4: well, i don't see how it goes across the board and whenever schools are still open i mean schools as i said are the second highest rate of infection right now if it was genuinely about that close schools
5: ushing close schools is that the way to deal with it i mean i think uh, it's honestly something that should be looked into having schools closed maybe a week or maybe not two weeks but at least a week before christmas but um, the education minister seems quite insistent at the start of the year, at the start of the school year, that not one school day would be lost. So that's the policy that the Department of Education seem to be sticking to at the minute.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point, Johnny, which is that your former party, DUP, controls the Department of Education, and Peter Weir has been quite obstinate, I think, whether you take that as a positive or negative, that children will not
4: be let out of school at any other time. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're not going to miss a day of school, why should a business owner miss a day of business, something that they've put their entire work of life into? I mean, you're just saying, okay, now because of this, we're going to just, that's it, your business is gone, end of, enjoy Christmas, oh wait, you don't actually have the money to afford Christmas, unlucky. Let, let me ask you this, so then uh, you were no doubt then probably in favour of the actions that the
0: DUP took last week in using a, a veto in order to initially block the restrictions that were put forward. Um, do you, would you have any concerns at all about the fact that that was a cross-community veto, and this issue was not one that could fairly, probably, be represented as a
4: cross-community issue. This is, are you saying this isn't a cross-community? I mean, every single person is affected by this in one way or another. It's working-class Catholic families, working-class Protestant families and everything in between. Um, you know, business, I mean, just, not just unionists here, running businesses, it is everyone in Northern Ireland is, could be affected by this. So I think they're not only within the right, they should have kept on to it and then, Unfortunately, the crumble. Let me ask you both this. So the last couple of weeks has been a bit of chaotic at Stormont.
0: I think you might agree on that, if nothing else. How much faith do you both have in, in the, our governing parties at Stormont? You're both young people. The, these are the folks who are in charge. Do you have any faith in those who are leading us at Stormont, O'Shane?
5: Uh, to be honest, uh, from the two main parties, not very much at all. Like, and these past few weeks have just shown that they're determined any sort of difficult decision, they kick the can, kick the can down the road until it comes to the very last minute and they're scrambling to make a decision which just leaves so many businesses, so many individuals and organizations in Northern Ireland with so much uncertainty where they didn't know on the Thursday whether they were able to open on the Friday or Saturday, mm-hmm. which is just... Well, your party's in there with the mushing. I Absolutely. and. Again, we went in uh, back after the new decade, new approach agreement in a show of solidarity effectively to, you know, build up trust in government again that was severely lost after three years of stagnation. Now, that new decade, new approach has, I'll be honest, there's no new approach. This, this is the same old, same old, and to be honest, if there wasn't a pandemic on, um, I can't really see any way that parties like the SDLP, Ulster Unionist Alliance would have continued to stay in the executive.
0: Well that's a good point, I think, in saying that we've been talking a lot over the last while about mandatory coalition, the style of government that we have. Johnny, you've left the DUP. Uh, uh, Two questions. One is that are you angling for a party that is more, is hardline than the right word, I don't know, somewhere like the TUV, and added to that. Would you subscribe to the kind of thinking which is that mandatory coalition doesn't work and we need to rethink the way that Stormont actually operates?
4: Uh, Well, I've been approached by the TV, but I said it it takes some time to think about it. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not 100% with all of their policies. Um, I just, I I do agree with uh, something that I remember Jim Alistair said a few times and I was talking to him about, he said, you know, like, I don't know many other countries in the world where you're forced to have, as many parties as who have a certain amount of MLAs who just ha- are handed the power, like you win an election, you become the government. This this is just a crazy idea that we have what, four, five parties in power now who can't agree on what colour wooden spoon is, let alone. <coughs> How to run a pandemic like I mean it's absolutely bizarre. Let me ask you this as well Johnny because I think this is quite an interesting
0: point. A Lucid Talk poll that came out uh, earlier on this year indicated that in in the age bracket of 18 to 24 year olds and this surprised me the party that most young people 28 percent most young people in Northern Ireland uh, want to vote for is the DUP. That surprised me maybe it shouldn't have surprised me but it did. Um, Do you think amongst young unionists that you know uh, and, and associate with uh, uh, and socialise with, is there a growing discontent with the DUP and could you see many of those young people starting to move towards parties that could be considered as more you know, traditionally unionists, maybe more hardline
4: unionists like the TUV? Yes, uh, certainly 2020 has been quite a crazy year, I'm pretty sure we can all agree on that, but a lot of unionists of all ages, particularly young as well, were very frustrated with the new decade, new approach deal. And as of recent, these restrictions just, I mean, you just go on social media, you see, like, the majority of people agree with me on this, that they are frustrated with the restrictions. They feel like they've been let down by the, uh, the parties and the executive, and we just need to get on with our lives, so at least at certain And that's not to say, like, I should still keep uh, wearing face masks, you know, sanitizing, doing those simple things but we do need some form of normality in order to progress as a society. A, a final word to you, Oshin. Uh, Johnny says that, uh, well, he believes that a majority of people
0: are behind him. Um, um, uh, do, what do you think uh, What do you think the public reaction is over the next while? Are the public still supportive of the kind of measures that, that you have advocated, that your party has advocated? Are they still on side?
5: I think, well, over the past couple of months, you know, you've seen after a confusing message, You know the public got disillusioned i hope now that there is a couple more weeks of clarity and a really clear message that people will understand and will follow those restrictions because they are harsher but um and hopefully for the greater good of being able to have a few weeks of christmas where um people will come and meet their families and don't forget there's a vaccine There's a couple of different vaccines coming a month, two, three months down the road, so this isn't going to, you know, be sticking around forever. Like, it's something that, given six months or so, we might be in some way back to... A form of normality. Well that's
0: the best possible Christmas gift we could probably hope for. Thank you very much both Johnny Merrin's former DUP member and Oshin Donnelly, a quality officer for uh, SDLP Youth. Thank you both for being with me. This is A Scoop on Sunday. The time is 14 minutes to 8. Well now one of the many considerations during this pandemic, Johnny just mentioned one of them, is mental health. I'm joined now by Neve McMullen, host of The Mental Health Scoop. Uh, Neve, thank you very much for being with us. Oh, we'll just get your mic on one second, Neve. Can you hear us? You can. Yeah. Fantastic, Neve. You had a show on this week. Um, we chatted to you last week as well. You had a blockbuster show with some fantastic guests. Why don't you give us a rundown about what was on the mental health scoop this week?
6: So basically, on this um, this week's of mental health scoop, and um, we you know discussed suicide prevention. It's a very heavy topic, and um, and it's probably a very you know sensitive to a lot of people because you know it's affected a lot of people, especially in Northern Ireland. Um, because you know the numbers in comparison to the rest of the UK are the highest um, in Northern Ireland, and I wanted to sort of get um, you know an idea of why that was. So I spoke to the mental health champion Siobhan O'Neill, and I spoke to. Um, a suicide survivor Dylan McKay and they both he gave me his experience his recovery story and Siobhan spoke, spoke to me sort of about some of the reasons um, of the suicide rise in Northern Ireland um, especially in men and um, she spoke to me about how we could notice signs and how we can help um, to people that you know friends family that sort of are you know struggling or, sh- or kind of showing suicidal thoughts.
0: What can we do? That's a really good point so if you think well, somebody in your social circle is is not okay right now what's the way to approach that how do you spot that
6: people that have um, you know reported suicide thoughts or have experienced it in the past have always said that you know you don't realize how important it is to you know, have that to have the knowledge of having somebody there for you. And so that person that speaks to you and just asks you, even if you're not showing signs or even if you're just acting, you know, slightly different, maybe just, maybe it could even be just tiredness, you know, if you ask them if they're doing okay, that is one of the biggest ways you could prevent someone from suicidal thoughts because you showing that you care about them shows that you know they're valued and they are needed here to stay and be friend. You know be your friend forever.
0: What were the main things you took away from your guests this week? What are you gonna sort of employ in your own day to day life?
6: Well, it's important I think, especially due to you know the you know the rise and an increase in talking about um, mental health, with in, in particular in you know, relation to children and students. Um, we ha- we can't forget about the, you know, the older generation, those that are maybe isolating at home um, and they don't have social media. Um, so it's important to keep in, t- in touch with, you know, your relatives that are, like, maybe suffering loneliness. You don't understand what they're going through whenever they're on their own. So it's important that we keep in contact with our elderly, um, you know, relations, making sure that they're okay. Even
0: just checking in with people on your street, even if it's not a relative. just neighbours,
6: you know, it, and it helps, it'll brighten their day. Absolutely. And you know it'll keep their mental health up and you know their loneliness will just completely decrease and um, it's important that you are asking your friends and um, especially boys because boys really do struggle to open up and you can see that in the statistics and um, the rise um, in, in suicide was actually just due to boys the rise and um, the suicide number for women had gone down but the actual overall rise of suicide numbers in northern Ireland had increased just because of the, uh, the number of boys why is that um, boys can't open up you know boys have been conditioned from a very young age to you know not to express their emotions because that presents them as being unfair inferior and and that's just not the case everyone has the right to express their emotions talk about their problems and that is why there is such a stigma around mental health and boys and what what you can do is you know the a, a very much used um sort of campaign at the minute is shoulder to shoulder and that's basically, you know, implying um, how you, like asking your friend in, in like day to day activities, like say if you're in the car, or you're playing, a f- or you're watching a football match. Just gently ask them how are you doing. Um, you think you kind of seem a wee bit down, and that's one of the best ways to ask them on how they're doing. So it's not a, you know. You're really not looking them in the eye and really making them feel that kind of.
0: Absolutely. Well, you can listen to all that on the Mental Health Scoop uh, in all your usual podcast places. You've got another show um, coming up this week. What can we look forward to, Nate?
6: So next week we are going to be discussing um, the physical um, impact that you know physical activity has on the mind um, and how that improves the mind, especially during the coronavirus and you know when we're in isolation and you know in lockdown and um, how important that is to have that element in your life and um, because it will really improve your mental health and it's great for it so we'll be discussing that with Sean McCarthy.
0: Sean McCarthy um,
6: um, from the Dublin um, football team so he he's going to be talking about his mental health issues and how you know sports helped him overcome them.
0: Fantastic we can look forward to that so that is thank you very much Neve McMullen there host of the Mental Health Scoop Queen's Radio uh, Friday 10 a.m or wherever you find your podcast this is the scoop on Sunday the time is 10 minutes to eight. <music> Now, let's try to find our happy place. Rebecca Dobbin-Donaghy from our news team is with us to bring us some of her picks of good news stories of the week. Rebecca, what have you got for us this week? What's your first good news story?
1: First good news story? Well, they've been talking about it for long enough, but the UK have finally um, placed a ban on cars that burn fossil fossil fuels. So that's officially scheduled for 2030, which is five years earlier than they'd already um, planned. Um, The ban comes into effect that will affect both petrol and diesel powered vehicles and five years after that in 2035 it'll be hybrid vehicles as well um, so the announcement came on wednesday from boris johnson who said the ban would be part of a broader green industrial revolution in which 12 billion pound will be spent on other projects as well such as proposed quadrupling of offshore wind energy investments in hydro nuclear powers just making homes more efficient in general
0: Okay, fantastic. Uh, that's a great one. Let's stick with the theme of, 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 of the Earth and the environment. You've got another story here to do with Amazon, is that right?
1: Yes, so um, Jeff Bezos, we'll all have heard of as the CEO of Amazon, um, has just launched the Jeff Bezos Earth Fund, which is worth about $10 billion, and has already in uh, distributed $791 million in grant money to large um, just environmental organisations, restoring... Forests, Wildlife, all, all sorts of um, different organisations. The biggest donation so far has went to WWF, um, but a lot of other smaller organisations have also benefited from the grant. Um, it's likely that Jeff Bezos' grants are in an attempt to reduce carbon footprint of Amazon itself. Yeah, it's the world's just, largest retailer. But yeah. um, any sort of attempt to make it any better, we'll have to give him credit for it.
0: Um, I was trying desperately while you were saying there to think of a joke to do with 9 to 5 because your next story is about Dolly Parton. What's this all about?
1: Yes, um, St. Dolly Parton actually is what she should be referred to as. Last week we were talking about the different COVID vaccines that were being developed, but um, Dolly actually was directly impacted on the Moderna um, vaccine. She donated $1 million that was took a massive part in the development of the vaccine. She actually has a long history of charitable giving and since 1995, she's gifted more than 147 million books to children in need through her own foundation, Dolly Parton's Imagination Library. So basically, Dolly Parton should get a Nobel Prize and it's ridiculous that she hasn't got one. Well, already. you heard it
0: here first. The campaign begins next week. Um, uh, coming up later uh, in the year, we've got Christmas. We have to speak to you about your your go-to Christmas recommendations. What are you telling people to buy for the festive season for their loved ones?
1: Yes, um, anyone that listened to last week's show, these there were poor enough recommendations last week. They were, I think, yeah. I think these ones are even worse. So just Good. every week, um, people come out with more stuff that's just ridiculous. But um, this week, a US brewery has launched a new beer bearing the name of the president-elect. So it's Biden Beer. Um, the, the boss of the brewery described it as inoffensive and not too bitter, so um, I don't know, we'll not talk about what his political opinions are, we'll not assume anything, but um, I think he's made a good stab out it there. Um, and, and you've then, got another pick as well. Yes, this one is, yeah, it's not great, but uh, a DIY meal kit for growing steaks made from human cells is being nominated for design of the year at the minute. Um, so it would allow customers to use their own cells to grow miniature human meat steaks. So they've said that it's it's not technically can- cannibalism, but I think when you're in that sort of area where you're arguing that it's technically not cannibalism, you're you're on dodgy ground at that point. So that's my two picks for- That's your picks, yeah, for Christmas. Awful, awful gifts if you want to have someone that you don't really like. For the ever. man or
0: woman who has everything, think about a DIY human steak. Rebecca, thank you very much for being with us. Rebecca Dobbin-Donaghy there from our news team with some of this week's good news stories. <laughs> Still to come on the show uh, was the QUB Debating Society right to hold a debate on abortion this week. We're going to be chatting about Jeremy Corbyn being reinstated into the Labour Party and thousands of sexual images of Irish women were leaked online uh, this week. We're going to be talking about revenge porn here on the show. That's all still to come. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is five minutes to eight. Now, though, time to put our thinking caps on and listen to the wise words of Dr. Keith Brain with his thought for the week.
7: Did somebody
8: say Keith Breen? Hello, folks. Keith Breen here again to share some perhaps interesting, perhaps inane thoughts with you once more. First off, again, I hope you're doing well, despite the continuing virus and the ongoing restrictions in place. I also hope your friends and loved ones are equally fine. So what have I been thinking about this week? Mm, I confess... Nothing much, to be honest. Just a couple of, uh, of things. Um, the first relates to Christmas, and more particularly, and you might think this random, but it really gets in my, in my proverbial tits, um, Christmas decorations, and the people who festoon their houses with such, and this already in November. I really just don't get this. I, I really don't know what's wrong with them. It can't be that they're uber-Christians, since Christmas doesn't begin until well into December. I suspect it might have had to do with a fetish for baubles and tinsel and just plain boredom on their part. My second and more interesting thought for the week relates to my finally recognising that I'm a bit out of touch with the current world. For example, I just discovered that there is apparently a fourth wave of feminism that can be dated exactly to 2012. Exactly 2012, according to Wikipedia, which we all will trust. In addition, I had it confirmed that I no longer have a grasp of mainstream technology and any any real understanding of things like streaming. This is after I accidentally shared all my pre-recorded lectures across the entire university with all students, all academic staff, and all administrative straf- staff. Swears and all. But what really got me is a message I I received from a student on Wednesday. He wanted to know what the thing I mentioned in one of my team's tutorials was. He'd never heard of the Cold War and thought it a strange term. This really, really blew my mind. Not because that this guy was a tad benighted, though he was, but because it made me realize that the world I knew and was familiar with is not the world now. Also that I should really update my classes with more contemporary examples. But this got me thinking a little further, and now this time about aging, about no longer being young, about getting older, about the march of time, and what it does to us. Though I see the world through eyes that appear to me no different than, than when I was 25, I can no longer say I'm young and no longer even early middle age. Okay, most of you are young, and thus you're most likely thinking, hey, this doesn't apply to me, and why should we listen to this old fart anyway? I guess you'd be right in thinking that. I myself many times don't listen to myself either. It's not worth doing that. But that said, there will come a day when standing before a wa- washbasin in your bathroom, you'll look up into the mirror and exclaim to your newly wrinkling and graying self, Who the hell is that staring back at me? Christ, what have I become? Or there will come a day when you say to your partner something you would not have said when twenty-five. Look, woman, or man, whichever or both, two times is enough. I can't go on. Please leave off and go to sleep. Such is your fate, too. You see, folks, time is a tyrant that marches relentlessly on, taking us with it inexorably. And there's nothing you can do about it but accept it with the best grace possible. Anyway, that's my rather depressing thought for the week. That's it, folks. Hope you can tune in next week. Until then, stay lucky and young for as long as you can.
0: That was our thought for the week from Dr. Keith Breen. We'll be releasing a special podcast of all of Dr. Breen's thoughts at the end of the term, so you can look forward to that. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is 8 o'clock on the dot. Okay, now, this week the QUB Debating Society, known as the Literific, held a debate about abortion. In formal debating type, uh, the the motion read, This House regrets the decriminalisation of abortion in Northern Ireland, and included speakers. Uh, such as Anne Padder T Padder uh, Tabin TD, Carla Lockhart uh, MP on one side of the house and on the other side of the house Councillor Anya Grogan, Anne Ferretti and Kerry Dingle. However, Project Choice the pro-choice group here at Queen's University, uh, protested against the debate. They released a statement saying that it wasn't a serious event, that they were disappointed by the speakers uh, who had been chosen, and that the bodily autonomy of women should never be up for debate in the first place. I'm joined now by Matt Lee, president of The Literific, and Anne Cox, co-chair of Project Choice. Thank you both uh, for being with us. Matt, why don't we start with you first. What, what, what is this debate? What was it all about? Why did you hold it?
9: Yes, yeah, so the Literific, as you've uh, well pointed out, is the official debating society here at Queen's. Um, we held a debate last Monday on uh, this house regrets the decriminalisation of abortion in Northern Ireland the year after decriminalisation has come in. Um, and this debate was about exploring whether popular opinion was recognised on campus, allowing students to challenge uh, big-name speakers, um, both the... Proposition and opposition on people that believed that decriminalization should be something that we regret, and people that believe decriminalization is something we shouldn't regret. And the Literific held this debate. Uh, every speaker was given a chance to be challenged uh, by students. Uh, we don't platform any speaker individually without the ability for them to be challenged. Uh, this is a very sensitive topic, as we as we all know, and there's two very strong opinions on either side of the aisle. Uh, so we tried to do that in a respectful manner that was constructive through, as you pointed out, a regimented debate in traditional debating style format. Um, and we can only uh, say that we, we do give the opportunity for students to challenge speakers and
0: to engage with that debate, and, and we stand by holding that debate. And um, uh, the debate was held on Monday. Project Choice released a statement on Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, wh- what's the problem? Why, why did Project Choice not support the debate, and and what were your issues that you had with it?
10: Well, uh, Project Choice operates under the philosophy that human rights are non-negotiable. And regardless of how strong the opinions are on either side, that doesn't change the fact that it is a fact that human beings have the right to their own bodily autonomy. And by elevating the choice of, or the opinions of the students to yes, I agree with this fact, or no, I don't agree with this fact. It's entertaining a hypothetical that is debasing to the human rights of women and pregnant people. And most of the campus here on Queens supports uh, the right to choose. And the fact that Project Choice exists is evidence of that. And by having an even debate over something that is a fact, elevates a side that is frankly a minority and gives that more power. And that's bad politics on our part to engage with something as though we're evenly matched. Um, And furthermore, there have been plenty of debates about things that are facts or not facts. We saw in the past several years, people debating climate science. And no matter how many debates they have or how strongly someone believes that climate science isn't real, climate change is happening, and to engage in a hypothetical where we assume a premise where it might not be, is taking a hypothetical that we can't support.
0: Matt, uh, uh, Anne makes a point, abortion care is regarded by many international players, including various UN bodies as a human right. Anne mentions the right to bodily autonomy. Why are rights like this up for a debate? Why is it okay for a debating society to take something which is established as a right? By the people that Anne mentioned and I mentioned, and take it apart and, and see and see if that's in some way negotiable.
9: Well, I'd have to uh, start this by agreeing with uh, with Anne uh, by saying that most of the campus does agree that uh, that the with the pro choice mindset that this uh, that the decriminalisation of abortion in Northern Ireland shouldn't be regretted. They voted against it in the poll that we we did on on the debate, um, and we have to respect uh, ultimately that on campus, we have one of the lar- largest uh, pro-choice organizations in the UK and Europe, and we also have the biggest Christian union in, in Europe, and we also have one of the most active
0: pro-life societies. Yeah, but what about Europe, the point so. that I'm making, Matt, which is that, uh, as Anne says, she says that human, human uh, sort of a right to a bodily autonomy is an established international right. Why is it up for debate? Why are you in a position to negotiate something which she says is well-established as being an international right? Well, this debate concerns two
9: interpretations of human rights. It, it, it this debate concerns uh, the interpretation of of women's bodily autonomy as a human right, and also the idea that there is an unborn child uh, that has a human right in that sense that it, it that it shouldn't be uh, that, that an abortion shouldn't be carried out. and And that is that is a division that we see in in Northern Ireland. And also, there is a constitutional aspect to this debate that we must remember, which was raised in the debate whether people of northern ireland should have been consulted uh whether uh decriminalization should have taken place whether it should have followed a repeal the eighth uh movement
0: that we found in the south or or not
9: so that that was up for debate as well yeah
0: and and the the debate itself in in the statement released by project choice said that this wasn't a serious debate on the constitutional question of the decriminalization of abortion wasn't a serious debate What, what did you mean by that
10: well, I think that our point there speaks to twofold of different aspects of this. First of all, uh, merely by the fact that abortion activists here in Northern Ireland didn't engage should have been a signal in and of itself that this wasn't something that the the movement for the protection of the right of abortion was taking seriously. And therefore, by proceeding with that, it was inherently not taking it seriously, if, if the movement is not taking it seriously. and furthermore the speakers uh who were chosen are esteemed but aren't abortion activists and they have harmful many of them have harmful voting records
0: well, could, yeah i'll, I'll like, let matt respond to that first point which is that uh, i mean it was it was the case that on one side of the debate project choice dis- didn't take part mm-hmm. was that an indication to you that this isn't the debate that should have been taking place Well,
9: well, no. Uh, So we did not formally engage with either the QB Pro-Life Society or uh, Project Choice. There was informal conversations between myself and others, between individuals involved. It was made very quickly uh, clear that Project Choice wouldn't uh, get themselves involved with with, with this debate. But it is wrong to suggest that there wasn't abortion, uh, there wasn't pro-choice, activists involved in this debate from Northern Ireland. We had councillor Anya Grogan, who is a big uh, pro-choice activist, a Green Party sitting councillor in Belfast City Council, and we had student speakers that were involved in repeal the 8th and decriminalised movements as well. So I don't think it is fair to say that the pro-choice activists here in Northern Ireland wholeheartedly didn't engage. Lots of them did, uh, but Project Choice on campus decided not to, and that's well within... Project Choice is right not to engage with this debate. We we did have a lot of individuals engaging, and I think it's important that we don't forget the head of the biggest independent abortion provider in the UK, which is BPAS, the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. Their chief executive officer, Anne Ferretti, was actually participating in the debate as well. And if she believes that this this debate should have gone ahead, then I'm fairly confident there was support from the pro-choice side.
0: Anne?
10: Well, that's uh, other pro-choice activists' prerogative is whether or not they're going to engage. But our position is not to take human rights as debatable. But but surely
0: it's interesting, is it not, that other pro-choice activists, including the largest independent abortion provider in the UK, decided that this was a discussion that they were prepared to have. Does that not leave your organization fairly isolated on this issue?
10: Again, that's their prerogative. And whether or not they're debating our rights is up to them. And... We decided not to engage with it. We would rather focus on protecting that right whether than trying to form some sort of understanding about the opinion of regretting whether or not we, the law, recognize our right. And other activists have different strategies and whether or not someone has a record of pro-choice policy doesn't necessarily make them a leader in the pro-choice movement of our campus community. Well, our campus community, someone who has an opi- a pro-choice opinion, is not necessarily a leader of a an activist movement and within the pro-choice society, Ulster University's pro-choice group has declined to participate in debates of this nature. Um, there's a precedent of lots of different local organizations declining to take I mean, it,
0: it's interesting. If I read the last sentence of your statement, what it says is that um, you're going to keep fighting on this issue. Uh, The bodily autonomy of women and pregnant people should never be up for debate and we will keep fighting for that right. Is a way to keep fighting for that right not to engage in debates like this and bring the argument to those who are pro-life and say here's our argument, we think it's better than yours, we think that it can can defeat your argument in a debate, here's what we have to say. Is that not a better way to fight for this right?
10: Our engagement is up a great deal over the past several years. I think we're doing fine in terms of outreach. Um, So, you know, whether or not we participate in debates about opinions of our rights doesn't even touch the scope of the work that Project Choice does in order to ensure the rights of bodily autonomy.
0: Certainly, but I mean, I want to move on in a second to the speakers that were there, but it's not fair to say that a, a very important form of outreach in terms of uh, the abortion discussion is reaching out to those people who disagree with you and trying to convince them that your argument is better than their opinion.
10: We have discussions and difficult conversations with people who disagree with us all the time. But in a so for- why did
0: you decide to sit out of this one?
10: In a format where the priority is essentially oratorical skills and not educating in order to change people's minds. And the fact that it was positioning as an even match, whether or not this is, w- the opinions about a right, elevating that is inherently not for the means of education and for the means of debate. And that's perfectly fine and people can debate that. We can debate hypotheticals all day long. But when people's rights are at stake, engaging in a hypothetical that elevates whether or not someone agrees with my right to my own body to the same as whether or not I have a right to my own body isn't necessarily something that is conducive to education.
9: Matt, yeah. So there was a few points, a few points raised there. So this debate was was a serious debate. It, we had a lot of engagement. We've had a, a more engagement than, than we're used to, um, quite frankly. And it was it was a serious debate, and it, it was it was a respectful debate as well. Um, Our society is apolitical, we don't take any political stances by nature of us being the debate society and me as president of the society, I am currently apolitical as well, I I take no stance on on this issue at the moment. But I think to say that it, it wasn't educational or there was kind of no benefit to it happening, well we, you know, it's well within Project Choice's right to not engage. I'm not here to argue against Project Choice at all, I'm not here to argue any case of that that nature but what I think it is important to do and why we've been so defensive of the debate is that on campus we should be able to have difficult conversations we should be able to have them respectfully and as a debating society if we start to get censored or, or drowned out then that is
0: that, it, that is a risk to us, because what is well, the of point you're of Well, are not existence? being censored, Matt. It's just one pro-choice group on campus which decided they didn't want to engage. Well, which just for clarification,
10: we're not a pro-choice group. We're the Students' Union's yeah. pro-choice group. So okay, we're not sorry. just a club.
0: That's an important clarification. Yeah.
9: yeah, and that, that, that's what let, we Let me ask rights. you this,
0: Matt, because in a second I want to move on to the specific speakers that were there. Yeah. I wonder if there's an element of reflection going on. Uh, that you are a, not somebody who will ever have to go through the difficult process of accessing abortion care you will never have to fly to another country in order to access that abortion care you will never be put in a position where you need to uh, you know travel through the night in order to in order to uh, under the causes of you know an unplanned pregnancy you will never be in that position do you reflect on that at all and think that it is slightly unfair to, for you to propagate and to argue in favour of having a debate on this topic when it is an experience that you will never even get close to?
9: Well, I, th- I think that, that is that is an important point. And, uh, you know, personally, I am, I'm a son. Um, I'm also a brother to a sister and I'm an uncle to three nieces as well. So this is an issue that I, I take to heart as well uh, in my own personal view. Um, but I, th- I think what's important is we had lots of engagement through our council. We have a majority female council for the first time. Um, we have uh, lots of people that were involved on various sides of the, the aisle of this issue, both men and women. And I think that it, you know, it's perfectly up to an individual to say whether they, they feel confident speaking on this issue or they feel that they're, uh, they're qualified to speak on this issue. And that's not what I'm here to do. But I'm here to say that this debate took place we were right to
0: hold this debate. It's a difficult conversation. Let, let me move on for a second, guys, because another part of this conversation is, of course, the participants in the debate, one of whom, uh, it, it was raised by the, the statement by Project Choice, in particular, and by other commentators, mm. which was Anne Whittacombe, so yeah. a, a former uh, front bench MP for a number of years, uh, Matt, Anne is clearly a controversial character. We all know she's a controversial character. Is it the case that this is a character and a speaker you knew would make a splash and she was invited therefore because you knew it would get a good headline?
9: Uh, no, not at all. If you look at the speakers for the uh, for the proposition, it was quite clear how it's been organised. So we have two socially conservative figures from the Republic and from GB respectively, and then an, also a, a pro-life figure from Northern Ireland, the elected uh, MP Collar Lockhart. Um, so I think Anne represents something that is is widespread within the UK the kind of bastion of the Christian right if you if you want to call her that and i think she has um, she has credentials as being a former uh, front bencher former shadow home secretary she's also heavily involved in the abortion argument has been since uh, since university I'm so, so I, I, I think respectfully she is qualified to talk on the topic
0: and uh, project choice find issue with Anne Whittacombe being invited as a guest is she a qualified person to talk on this issue
10: well, her voting record speaks for itself. She's voted on several issues that um, throw under the bus the rights of LGBTQ people, the rights of young girls. And frankly, whether or not someone has a, a view that agrees or disagrees um, with a right, or whether or not they have long list of credentials in the professional sphere, if you're coming from a perspective of having a voting record where you essentially subjugate vast parts of the population of Northern Ireland to second class citizenship, that is inherently coming towards the topic of the autonomy of people that are being represented from a point of view that is not taking seriously the humanity of the women and pregnant people whose um, lives are being discussed, frankly, by my colleague, who I respect his position and his his role, but um, as a hypothetical for my colleague who is a political and talking about his own object, objectivity as an asset. And that's certainly an asset in some ways, but it is debasing then for me to turn around and talk about my own life um, to someone who's treating my life and my body and my rights as a human being and whether or not I'm a second class citizen in my country or in my home country um, to, to engage with someone who is able to have the level of speaking about my own life as a hypothetical and whether or not someone is coming from the same point of view and some coming from a similar experience of me as a woman and as a qualified woman who has lots of credentials she's still speaking about people who are seeking abortion and people who are seeking reproductive health care from a point okay, of view well, of someone man, who has I mean, privilege.
0: Anne makes a fair point, which yes. is that Whittacombe has been accused in the past of making lots of comments. I mean, there's a, a litany of examples in some ways mm-hmm. of, of things that have been interpreted as homophobic, racist, at times in denial of climate change. She's clearly a deeply controversial character and I would find, I would challenge you to find anyone who would tell me that she is representative of anywhere near a majority or even a small minority of people's opinions. Why on earth is she a qualified character to talk on issues like this?
9: Well, I, I would say that she, she does represent a, a certain view and a certain ideology. For example, she was recently elected as a member of the European Parliament. Before that, she was Shadow Home Secretary, um, and she has been very involved in this issue. Now, I want to reiterate: it's perfectly uh, acceptable and uh, agreeable to, to to find people that we put up um, as speakers or a, as talk speakers, uh, uh, you know, abhorrent, and and to challenge them because we give a platform enable to empower students to be able to challenge people that shape policies of the day that make decisions of the day we don't endorse policies of the day did she make well, decisions she, of she the was, day she was previously a member of the european parliament in the biggest return party that the uk gave so yes she was seen as kind of second in command of that of that party. Well, we're running
0: out of time, time here guys so i want to put to Anne the, the point that matt has just made which is that lots of reasons and you've outlined them why, why you disagree with Anne widdekombe she was there to be challenged and if you had wanted to you could have challenged her on those issues as well as the specific one to do with her thoughts on abortion.
10: What I think my ultimate question is to, to what end who would that have served That would have served the people who already have a point of view. She doesn't have a power to make a specific policy here in Northern Ireland. It, I would have maybe well, I mean what it would
0: have done is maybe convinced some of the attendants at the debate that your argument was better than Anne Whitacombe's argument.
10: But again, we're talking about opinions and agreeing. And I'm perfectly confident in my colleagues and my co-chair's ability to discuss this. We discuss it all the time. We have hard conversations all the time. We're perfectly confident in our views. But it's whether or not we're willing to engage in a hypothetical that suggests that the right to bodily autonomy is... The
0: final thing I want to is, ask is, you just said you just that you engage in these difficult conversations, but it seems to me you're saying you engage with these difficult conversations, and this was an example of a difficult conversation. Why didn't you decide to engage in this difficult conversation?
10: Again, it's, it's, it's about the format and it's about the context. If the means to the end is, the, the means to the end, regardless of what was happening around the debate, the means to the end was to debate opinions. Mm-hmm. And our work is to educate and outreach to people. And if our education and outreach happened As a cherry on top of a debate of an event whose purpose was to debate opinions that's not necessarily yeah let's
0: put that to Matt I mean debates like this Matt are in many ways performative you know, they're designed in order to uh, for, for attendees to have an entertaining evening. It's about a debate being enjoyable for those who are there. Is it appropriate for an entertaining, performative debate like this to be on something which is so personal and so difficult for so many people? Well, I disagree that this debate was... And we're going to have was, to leave it soon, guys. ...was maybe. created as an entertaining or, or performative event for people
9: to enjoy from that aspect. I think it was a challenging conversation that we, we all are having. But I'd like to finish on, on one thing. That in a democracy, in the democracy we live in, we have tough conversations. We challenge each other. Debate exists from coffee table to dinner table to universities, et And you know, I'm proud to be the president of a society that engages with that and, and that holds these debates and tough conversations. And the only apology that I can give is that if people have seen this debate as insensitive or are, are, are putting on of this event as insensitive, then I'm, I'm sorry for that. Okay, and
0: I'm I give the final word to Anne.
10: And yeah, I would just like to close with uh, I am excited that there is so much engagement around this topic. And we would encourage anyone who's interested in taking part in these difficult conversations to serve the ultimate purpose of education and engagement to check out Project Choice's work and get involved if
0: Okay, they like. Fantastic. Thank you very much both. We went way too long there, but it was an interesting <laughs> conversation and one I think worth having. Thank you both. Matt Lee, president of the Literific and Ann Cox co-chair of Project Choice. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is 21 minutes past eight. Okay, let's move on for one second. This week, Jeremy Corbyn, he was Labour leader until April of this year, was suspended from the party in October over his response to the Equality and Human Rights Commission report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Corbyn said that anti-Semitism was exaggerated for political reasons. That was why he was uh, asked to leave the party. This week, Corbyn was reinstated into the Labour Party, but Keir Starmer decided to block him from rejoining the parliamentary Labour Party. Um, uh, this is the the group of uh, Labour MPs in the House of Commons. This has caused severe divisions in the Labour Party. Many constituency Labour groups and Corbyn's allies in trade unions have swung in behind him, whereas the Jewish Labour movement chair and board of deputies of British Jews' president remain very opposed. Just before the show, I chatted to Jack O'Dwyer Henry. Jack is a student at Lancaster University. He was elected as a councillor in Lancaster City Council in May of uh, of last year, of 2019. He left the Labour Party this week and is now sitting as an eco-socialist independent. Here is what he had to say. Jack, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, where to begin? Why don't you talk us through your thinking, why you've left the Labour Party, and what you and your fellow councillors have done now?
11: Well, yeah, on Tuesday, five um, councillors, um, including myself from Lancaster City Council, um, resigned from the Labour Party. Um, and we're remaining councillors. Um, we're sitting as eco-socialist independents. And um, the makeup of Lancaster City Council is such that um, since the council elections in May of last year, um, the council's been um, led by a coalition of Labour, Green and Lib Dem councillors. Um, with us resigning, though that combination of parties now doesn't have a majority, but we've been clear that we, we support locally the council's priorities and are just going to um, try to join on to the alliance of those um, councillors. Um, our reasons for resigning for the Labour Party were, were very much to do with um, what's been happening nationally as opposed to um, specifically anything local um, and it's been uh, an uncomfortable time for all of us um, since uh, the general election and especially since Keir Starmer became leader. All of us joined um, under Jeremy Corbyn um, in, inspired by that sort of socialist vision for the Labour Party and for the country um, but under Keir Starmer it's become increasingly obvious um, that he's uh, pushing the Labour Party um, to the right um, on a whole host of policy areas um, and also the way in which he's running the party. Um, I'm sure we'll get on to talk about the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn um, and the suspension of um, many Labour members who then stood up in defence of Jeremy Corbyn um, and it's an increasingly undemocratic party. Um, and an increasingly right-wing party, I, I suppose we just the, couldn't represent it anymore.
0: I suppose the thing that jumps out to me first, Jack, is that you talked about after the election in Christmas of last year, up until Jeremy Corbyn uh, uh, was removed and replaced as leader of the Labour Party. I mean, it, it, it needs to be said up front, Jeremy Corbyn uh, led the Labour Party to its greatest electoral defeat in, in nearly a century. It seems to me that you say uh, Keir Stormer is leading the party to the right, um, be that as, as it may, he may or may not, I'm sure he would refute that. His argument is probably that he's leading the Labour Party towards electability again. I mean, on the doorstep, uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his leadership, second only to Brexit, were the really big problems that a lot of Labour seats north of England had with the Labour Party. They voted for the Tories instead. Does it not seem as if you're siding with the, the part of the Labour Party that resulted in it, its greatest election defeat in almost a century?
11: Well, the story of Corbyn's leadership and the story of the past five years within the Labour Party was of a party machinery that was sort of intent on destroying Corbyn. He had um, the parliamentary Labour Party against him and it's become obvious due to leaks and stuff over the past couple of months um, that even party staffers and people who were meant to be working towards a, a Labour government, were actually celebrating um, whenever Labour was uh, doing badly in the polls, etc. And those are, those are the people who are now backing up Keir Starmer, the people who um, did what they could to foment party disunity. Um, and also, when it comes to the 2019 general election um, specifically, um, you know, I spent countless hours out on the doorsteps last winter um, and without a doubt Brexit was the biggest issue um, where Labour sort of confused policy to begin with and then its sort of commitment to a second referendum um, was definitely I think the one key issue that lost us the election. The reason why the Labour Party had that policy was because Keir Starmer specifically was the one pushing for it and um, so there's, I think I'd I, I don't really understand these people trying to present them as some sort of electoral genius, but but again, never, then one, again then again, you know, be blamed for that policy as him.
0: Jeremy Corbyn's the leader of the party. If he had wanted to take a party, I mean, if he had wanted to take a party in the direction in fully throating Lee uh, supporting Brexit, he could have made moves in that direction. It was tacit at best any you know commitment he had had to had to voting in favor of Brexit. I mean, he was the leader of the party. The bot stops with him. Is that not the case?
4: Yeah, and
11: I'm 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 not saying that Jeremy Corbyn didn't make any mistakes. Um, and obviously, looking back in the last five years, I think the left of the party, when it was um, in in control of the leadership, should have used that to to its advantage a lot more. And um, I think, especially on Brexit, um, I think uh, it's it's pretty obvious that that the party made made the wrong call there. Um, however, let's bring yeah.
0: us up to date. Then let's bring us right up to where we are now. So Jeremy Corbyn um, expelled. Um, from the party over his reaction to the
11: well suspended suspended not
0: sorry yes you're right uh, from the party over his reaction to the eh uh, to the report into anti semitism he said that it was uh, quote uh, greatly exaggerated for political reasons did you support what he said
11: well I think the the, the specific wording of, of of what he said in his original response was was factual. Um, I think there was certainly people who were um, opposed to the Labour Party for political reasons, um, who then looked at the anti-Semitism issue and and intentionally over-exaggerated it um, in in order to... uh, further their own political interest, like you had prominent mainstream establishment journalists going on the media and in the press saying that Corbyn wanted to like reopen Nazi death camps, like that is clearly exaggeration um, and I think that was quite irresponsible and I think um, the, the EHRC report itself, page 27, there's a specific quote where um, the EHRC went out of their way to say that it is within Um, the human rights, the right to free speech of Labour Party members to make their own comments on how they perceive the scale of the problem within the Labour Party. Um, So what Corbyn actually did, what he said is defended within the AHRC report as a legitimate um, sort of point to make that's not racist at all. But uh,
0: it it strikes me that there are debates to be had Uh, on on the issues that you've just mentioned, Jack, but on the day that that report comes out that says to a certain extent Labour acted unlawfully and would need to amend the way it moves through disciplinary policies, for example, uh, uh, into the future, the worst possible thing that Jeremy Corbyn could have said would be to try to downplay anti-Semitism and its Uh, the extent to which it has um moved into the Labour Party and he took that opportunity to try to suggest that it was exaggerated I mean you can understand why there was an outrage surely
11: well Corbyn's response was very clear in that all of the um recommendation recommendations of the EHRC report um should be implemented in full as quickly as possible um and I think that was that was the right thing to do I think there's certainly been a sort of uh misreporting um, by some quarters of the media of, of what he actually said in his statement. He accepted that these recommendations were necessary for the party. He accepted that, um, obviously, the, the previous system and uh, the, his leadership hadn't been perfect um, on, on this issue. Um, and it's clear that uh, things need to change and Corbyn accepted that.
0: Well, let's move forward past that issue a, a bit. You, no doubt... Um uh, will have been in favour of, 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 of Jeremy Corbyn being reinstated into the, the Labour Party, but he was reinstated into the Labour Party in the same day that you and your fellow councillors left uh, the Lancaster City Council Labour grouping. Was that a mistake? Was that an unfortunate quirk of time that you left at the same time that he was reinstated, or were there much broader issues at play?
11: Well, we've been very clear that the reason for us leaving was um, not... Jeremy Corbyn. Um, it's been the the overall shift to the right and a whole range of policy areas, specifically the climate emergency um policy platform, um, which we think is obviously the most the most important policy issue um, that that we should be discussing. Um, and that's um something that Keir Starmer has has quite drastically, I think. Um, watered down some of the key commitments from, from what was Labour Party policy um, a year ago. Um, the fact that Corbyn was reinstated in the same day we resigned was just utter coincidence. Um, and uh, yeah, the, 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 t- the timing was, um, I suppose, interesting there. But um, let me, at the end of the day, it doesn't affect our decision.
0: Let me ask you this, Jack, because I suppose this plays into a much wider debate, which is is it not the case that uh, maybe in uh, politics in general, but particularly left-wing politics, there's now this kind of culture of purity, and unless you are part of uh, you know a party that does exactly what you want it to do on anything, uh, you know any of the policies you've mentioned, you will leave it, is there not something to be said for compromising, staying within the Labour Party under the leadership of Keir Starmer? It has some of the highest poll ratings that the Labour Party has had in the last number of years. According to many, you may disagree with this, it is looking much more electable than it has in the last number of years. Staying within that party, not getting everything that you want, but compromising. Has politics and politics on the left lost the ability to compromise? Um,
11: I, 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 I don't agree with that at all. Like, Politics is all about compromise. And for me, being a member of the Labour Party since 2015 um, has been a compromise. I don't think for um, any left-wing Labour member, the Labour Party has ever embodied the, the sort of ideal party or the ideal set of policies that they want. Um, but I do think whenever you shouldn't uh, go into a party saying that, um, come hell or high water, I will remain a member of this party, no matter um, how much it changes. Um, for us, it's, it's always been a compromise. But in the the, the past year, it's just become a compromise too far. So many sort of key principles and key ideas um, that that we hold uh, very uh, importantly and seriously as socialists have been undermined by um, the direction that Keir Starmer is bringing the party.
0: Where, where does where does Labour go from here?
11: Um, I, I I don't know. It's uh, it's it, it it's obviously in. Um, what Keir Sommer's done in terms of suspending Corbyn, then readmitting him, but not giving him back the whip. He seems intent on uh, sort of prolonging the civil war um, between the factions of the party for or, um, many or, more or, or he
0: seems intent on making it clear to his electorate and the people who might support Labour that there is a zero tolerance approach to anti-Semitism or tolerance of anti-Semitism, uh, and that he is, he is showing himself to, to, to have bold and strong leadership.
11: I think the majority of the electorate will see this for what it is, which is Keir Starmer playing sort of petty political games, trying to score points against a former leader who he's already succeeded. Like Keir Starmer's already in control of the party. Can not he just move on from obsessing over Corbyn and tell the electorate what he stands for? What does Keir Starmer stand for? What policies does he support? So far, he's sort of uh, supported the government um, whenever I think he shouldn't on, on on key aspects of the government's response to the to the pandemic. Um, um, and then whenever um, controversial topics have come up in Parliament, he's whipped the Labour um parliamentary party to abstain. It's not clear what Keir Starmer stands for at all. And I think most of the electorate will look on at this um, petty civil war and think, well, Keir Starmer's not really interested in in, in getting control of the country. He's well, just interested in getting control of the Labour Party. Let me ask
0: you a, a final question on that area. Labour's poll ratings um, and Keir Starmer's poll ratings have been some of the strongest that the Labour Party have seen in the last number of years. How does that fit with um, what you're saying about the electorate not understanding where Keir Starmer stands and what he represents?
11: I'll be more interested in seeing what actual election results um, happen, and we in in May have the local elections um, in in England, and it'll be interesting to see if if the polls re- reflect um, sort of uh, an, an increase in support for the Labour Party or an increase in support for Keir Starmer, because I don't really. Uh, think that there is any sort of uh, mass popular support um for Keir Starmer i think most most people will see him as sort of a bland, same old, same old politicians, Um, and I don't see him um, making the massive gains that Labour Party needs to make in order to um, get into government.
0: Okay, well, let's move it back to you for a second. You've left the Labour Party. Uh, What does the future hold for, for Jack O'Dwyer Henry politically? Will you rejoin the Labour Party at any stage? What happens to Lancaster Council when you leave? What does the future hold?
11: Well, What we're going to focus on sitting as um, independent councillors is just doing what we can locally, um, working with trade unions, tenant unions, um, helping um, organise um, the left uh, in Lancaster. um, And we have no intention of of joining any party or uh, doing uh, anything like that anytime soon. Um, It's been... uh, quite sad over the past year because so many really hard-working, really active Labour Party members um, have resigned locally and that's happened right across the country. Um, and we're sort of just uh, almost like sort of the, the last bit of that wave of resignations. Um, so there are loads of... Um, activists who have been politicised, empowered by the Corbyn movement, who have now left the Labour Party, turned their backs in the Labour Party, um, and will be throwing ourselves into some of the community campaigning and stuff that um, people like that are now turning their attention to.
0: Well, Jack, thank you very much for being with us. We will need to stay in touch and get you back on the show soon. Thank you for, for giving up your time and talking to us. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Thomas. That was Jack O'Dwyer-Henry, councillor in Lancaster City Council and a student at the university there. Now I'm joined in the studio by Olivia Fletcher, head of the Jewish Society on Queen's campus and also a Labour member. Uh, Olivia, thank you very much for being with us. Um, uh, Where to begin? There's so much to take apart in here. I wonder though if we could start a little bit differently. Um, Northern Ireland and uh, Queen's have a very small uh, Jewish population, uh, both in terms of students at the university and the Northern Ireland population as a whole. And therefore, I sometimes think it's quite difficult for people to kind of, uh, you know, empathise with uh, the idea of anti-Semitism, just because it's something you don't see as often. I wonder what your experiences are of anti-Semitism in Northern Ireland and, 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 and how they manifest themselves in a way that, you know, is kind of... it can be accessible to everyone.
12: Yeah, so... I guess, firstly, what I would say is that um, I'm only one Jewish person and I can't claim to speak for every single Jewish person there is because uh, we're not a homogenous group. Um, you know, There's often a joke that goes around in Jewish communities which is that you have two Jews in a room and you have three opinions, which I guess is kind of true. Um, but I can only speak from my own lived experiences, basically what I'm trying to say. So I think when we think about the Northern Irish community and where do Jewish people actually fit into this um it mostly comes down to um, Israel and Palestine because everyone or at least everyone should know that uh, Nazis are bad the Holocaust is bad and that's just where Jewish education in Northern Ireland and pretty much any non-Jewish school you go to finishes um And so to that extent, when you don't have this kind of background, for me as a Jewish person, these things are deeply, deeply ingrained into me from as long as I can remember. Um, As soon as I hear someone talk about, I don't know, uh, Zionism being used interchangeably with Jew, which kind of happens quite a lot here, um, that immediately sends off alarm bells um, in my head. And that comes down to affinities with Israel and Palestine and how that relates to uh, the communities here. So for example, again, I can't speak on behalf of these communities, um, and these don't represent the communities as a whole, but you know, you go into West Belfast up the Falls Road and you'll see Palestine flags everywhere. Where I live in East Belfast on my street, you'll see Israeli flags everywhere. And I think often that comes down to um, really unnuanced ways of thinking about the conflict and where Jews fit into that conflict. So. Um,
0: was 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 Jeremy Corbyn, he was expelled, uh, uh, not expelled, suspended from the Labour Party, on the basis of suggesting that the scale of the problem in Labour was exaggerated? You are a member of the Labour Party, mm-hmm. you are also Jewish. Uh, was that a problem that was exaggerated? Was it something that you felt when you were in the world of Labour politics?
12: Um, so if we're thinking about Jeremy Corbyn's statement, which uh, he implied that the situation, I think, had been overstated, he said something along the lines of that, um, and when he did that, I suppose what he was trying to do was defend his character, you know, he's, even long before I was born, he was huge into um, anti-racist uh, movements, I guess. But to say that the problem is overstated is, is completely, completely wrong. Um, and. To say that there isn't as much anti Semitism in this party, purely because, um, for example, the EHRC report, I think they only took a small amount of complaints that had been received. Um, the problem goes so, so much further than you can even imagine as a non Jewish person, than simply the Labour Party alone. Um, I already kind of touched on these things, though. So, when I hear the word uh, Zionist, when I hear the word George Soros, Globalist. immediately these things signal in my head are uh, huge alarm bells. And the problem is that those uh, alarm bells for me in the Labour Party do not send signals to non-Jewish people in the party because they simply have not had these structures deeply ingrained in them from practically the day they were born. Um, so the problem in the party is not overstated at all. In fact, I would go as far as saying it's understated you simply cannot imagine what it feels like to be a Jewish person and to constantly be compared to um, some kind of Israel lobby and to be assumed that you support an illegal occupation um, at, to the detriment of Palestinian people. Um, so often, um, not I don't think that anti-Zionism uh, is anti-Semitic, but so often in labor circles, those two things tend to overlap. And this let, is where the problem here really lies.
0: Let me ask you this then. Then, uh, Olivia, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, many people have been saying that they would prefer that he, sh- he stayed within the party because the Labour Party has a problem with party unity. H- how important is party unity in this overall uh, discussion? Because you, you wrote an article earlier on in the week which you know, in, in some ways argued that it, you, know, uh, y- you believed in some of the, the core principles of Jeremy Corbyn stood for some of those values other than the ones that obviously we're talking about here. How important is party unity in this discussion?
12: Well, I think, I mean, I can't really speak on behalf of the whole Labour Party, um, but you can obviously tell at the moment by the kind of administration that's in power with Keir Starmer as its leader. It's very clear that party unity is, you know, at the top of the agenda and the way that I guess supposedly went about that was uh, to suspend Jeremy Corbyn and subsequently has readmitted him, which I guess doesn't really do much for party unity. But again, I think this is simply more than the Labour Party can really uh, combat Anti-Semitism exists in Labour and outside of Labour.
0: Mm-hmm. Is, is, uh, we just spoke to a, a councillor there from Lancaster who has left the party, uh, not solely on this basis, on a number of other reasons. Is that the right response?
12: Um, well, I mean, respectively, the Labour Party under Keir Starmer now is a lot different to the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. So I can understand if... Um, you left because you felt like your values weren't represented. But if your sole reason was potentially leaving because you thought that anti-Semitism was overstated in the party, I would say that's quite a a problematic thing to leave over. Not that I would imagine anyone would leave over that.
0: Here's the final thing I want to ask, which is that um, uh, the uh, report that was done into Mm -hmm. anti-Semitism suggested a number of things that the Labour Party could do. Is this a problem that is fixable? For the Labour Party oh, and for the left in general,
12: a hundred percent. No, when I mean, if you
0: if there were a couple of basic things that you want to say to people, here's how we f- fix or go about fixing anti-Semitism in the Labour Party on the left. What are they?
12: Um. Well, I, for a start, I don't think anti-Semitism is something that has existed for thousands of years. Jews have been spelled for lands for thousands of years. You can't simply do this by you know quick small party procedures. Although, you can try to do it. Um, you can try to get it out of your ranks, I suppose, and the way that the AHRC report suggested to do that, uh, which I agree with, would be to implement some kind of independent complaints procedure uh, because at the moment the NEC, the governing body of the Labour Party, um, makes all the decisions of who is suspended, uh, who isn't suspended, all these kind of rules um, that govern the Labour Party, and they make the sole decisions. So we really do need an independent body, which I think would help to tackle this alongside other problems that exist in the party, uh, Islamophobia, sexual harassment, all these kind of things can be solved through an independence complaints procedure, but that will never ever remove the sheer amount of anti-Semitism that exists, not only on the left, but generally in Communities.
0: Olivia, we're going to have to leave it there. It is such an interesting conversation and we will be talking about this more and we want to get you involved, uh, h- you know, here in having that discussion because I think it's something we need to talk about more. We are going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. Thank you very cool. much, Olivia. Thank you. Olivia Fletcher, their chair of the uh, Jewish Party on campus and uh, Labour Party member. This is a scoop on Sunday. The time is quarter to nine. Now, this week, hundreds of thousands of sexual images of Irish women were discovered online on various internet forums, including a Discord server with 500 members. Some of those images appeared to be taken without the women's knowledge, such as photos from changing rooms, uh, while others may be of underage girls. A large number of those images were initially shared consensually by women on subscription services, such as OnlyFans, and then were copied without permission onto these forums. Others were images of women shared uh, with their partners, which were later uploaded without their permission. Uh, I'm joined in the studio now by Jill McManus, Women's Officer here at the QUB uh, Students' Union. Jill, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, I I really want to tackle this problem because, uh, you know, it's something we need to talk about more. Why don't you try to spell out for us, uh, what is revenge porn and what is the scale of this problem in in your eyes?
13: Um, Thanks very much for inviting me on to speak, Thomas. Um, So the phrase revenge porn has kind of been replaced with Um, A lot of activists in the Republic have started using um, image-based sexual abuse, Um, and it really reflects, like you already said, um, women who've shared consensually photos with partners and those in confidence, and those have been shared without their consent um, onto other people, Um, whether it be celebrities as well who've had their iClouds hacked, like has happened with Scarlett Johansson and Jennifer Lawrence, or whether it's been... um, people who have um, had their OnlyFans um, subscription images used. Um, The scale of this problem has really been shown to be far larger than I think a lot of people even anticipated. With some of these image servers had tens of thousands of images of women and girls as well. Um, And some of this is, in fact, child pornography. Um,
0: What, What does this say, Jill, about about sexism in this country? I mean, if you had to, if, if, if this had opened your eyes or said something new in any way, I mean, wh- what does it say about the, the state of this place?
13: You know, I think it's not talked about enough, but women's bodies for decades, both north and south of the border, have not been our own. Um, you saw it in the Magdalene laundries. You saw it in the mother and baby homes. You saw it in the fact that even whenever those records were about to be made public, they were sealed by the Irish government very recently. Um, those women will never see justice. Um, you saw it in the abortion laws, which, have, which changed in 2018 in the south of Ireland and changed last year here. Um, women's bodies don't belong to them. Um, you see it in rape trials, that happened, the one that happened in Cork, where a woman's underwear was showed in front of a jury, to reflect as if that means anything about the fact that she was sexually assaulted. Um, this problem is rampant and women's bodies are seen as public property, I think, by a lot of people. Um, The fact that people receive an image from their partner and feel fit to share that with friends really says a lot of concerning ideas about consent and what people think consent is and how people see their partners. Uh,
0: Let me ask you this. Um, If you're a victim of of this particular type of... I mean, it's it's not a crime, uh, and we'll have that discussion, that's a legal one, but let's call it a crime. What kind of unique mental... I mean, effect does that have on you? Because it's such a it's a, such a personal thing, and it's such a violating thing to have images of your share, of yourself shared online. Um, have you spoken to people, had personal experiences of this? I mean, what kind of mental effect does that have on people, and, and how is it unique?
13: Well, I'm fortunate enough that I haven't experienced this. Um, a lot of the people I follow on social media have um, experienced this, whether it be through um, OnlyFans or images that they've shared um, privately with partners. The loss of control I think a lot of people feel of, well, I was expressing myself sexually, consensually, but now this has been taken completely out of my control. And in fact, it leads people to be withdrawn. We saw in the case of Dara Quigley in 2017, it actually was highly probably a contributor to her suicide. Um, and it is actually a crime in Northern Ireland. Um, so if this does happen to you in Northern Ireland, you can report it to SNI and a revenge porn is a crime. It's not in the Republic. Yeah, and you're, that... you're right to
11: make.
0: Sorry, I was thinking mm-hmm. about down south. In, in Northern Ireland, it is a crime. T- tell me this. Um, uh, what can be done to, to stop this if we're talking Republic? I mean, why is it taking so long? Why is it not a crime in the south, and why is it a crime here?
13: Well, I think this was brought up in the UK Parliament. I'm not really sure why it's not been made a crime already in the Republic. I think so many of these issues have not been anticipated by a lot of people of an older generation, because social media is a new thing. Um, these images were spread so so widely and so quickly through the use of social media. You know, social media can be a fantastic thing for connecting people and for sharing activism, but it can also be an awful thing for people's mental health and for the kind of spread that this can take. Um, really what we can do is it requires both cultural change and legislative change. So There's currently a change.org petition going around to um, change the law in the South, but really, there's a lot of cultural work that needs done. Our sex education, both north and south of the border, is not fit for purpose. There's no discussion around consent when it comes to a lot of sex education, um, what consent means, when it can be withdrawn, what's appropriate to be shared, what isn't. Um, That really needs to change. A lot of this as well is, the fact is, these these images of women aren't being shared on group chats where women are present.
0: Okay, well, let, let's pick up on that point, because call it as it is, uh, the Discord server that was found and discovered, um, its members were 500 individuals. The vast majority, if not all, my understanding is that they were men. I, I mean, that that's a fact, that's a reality. What responsibility do men have in all of this?
13: A huge responsibility. Mm-hmm. Like, if you if you see one of your friends doing this, why should you tolerate it? It's violence against women um that's the reality of it and if you see your friend behaving that way you should tell them not only in the north it's illegal but it's morally wrong you shouldn't do something like that whether it's illegal or not they know deep down that it's wrong but somehow something has been set in their heads where they think oh it's just you know it doesn't matter but it does
0: is there a cultural thing you mentioned cultural thing is there a cultural thing with men in, in Ireland, maybe broader than that, this kind of laddish culture where, uh, you, you know, these images of, of women are regarded as sort of tokens of some sort of achievement, whatever it might be. is It's a cultural problem in your eyes, and in the eyes of many, to do with the, the way the way that men act in this country.
13: I mean, to say that it's all the faults of men, it's not, I, I wouldn't ever say that. I think people have been brought up in a culture where even you see whenever, women were being stabbed in the streets of Belfast, we were told not to go out. And that's kind of the start of the Reclaim the Night um, marches, what happened in um, North Yorkshire was um, women were being attacked by Peter Sutcliffe and there was a curfew made for young women as opposed to a curfew made for men because it was definitely a man who was murdering women. Um, But this, it needs to be taught in schools and I really think it needs to start with sex education. Stop educating sex, like, between boys and girls differently. Start educating them together about sexual consent and healthy relationships, and that would be a huge step forward as opposed to seeing people as being different from you, and I think that would change a lot of the way we view each other in terms of gender.
0: If women, perhaps students of of this university, broader than that, do need support on this, Jill, uh, where should they go? I mean, where can you direct them? Do they get help from the SU? Do they get help from other sources?
13: Um, there is support at Queen's. Um, Queen's has a report and support website um, where you can report crimes anonymously if you feel you need to do it anonymously and you can access um, emotional support and counselling from Queen's um, and that is at reportandsupport.qub.ac.uk. Beyond that, um, Nexus, Northern Ireland has a 24-hour uh, domestic and sexual abuse helpline um, at 0808 802 1414 and the rape crisis and we'll, we'll try Northern to get Ireland all of
0: those. Yeah, w- sorry, go on.
13: And the rape crisis NI support line is on Monday and Thursday between six and eight. And I'd also suggest to people, um, reclaim the night is happening this Saturday online, and I would really encourage people to attend. That's a uh, march traditionally held every year, but now it's being held online against sexual violence. Against and we'll women. definitely get all
0: of those contacts up on our Twitter as well. Uh, Jill, as a final kind of message off the back of this, what, I mean, what, what would you tell uh, people who are listening, male and female, uh, on this issue? I mean, what's the overriding message here?
13: that sharing intimate images that were shared with you consensually are not to be shared on words, Um, and to treat people with respect, um, that really is the basic message and it's shocking that it has to be said in 2020.
0: Jill, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Jill McManus, Women's Officer at the uh, QUB Students' Union there. Uh, So thank you for being with us. I can see us racing towards 9pm, and we've got a few scoop updates uh, still to bring you. Uh, Claudia Savage, our trending expert, is with us in the studio. Uh, Claudia, where are we starting today?
14: So this week, fans of Little Mix would have been upset to hear that Jessie Nelson has announced that she's taken a hiatus from the band. So she's taken an extended break from Little Mix for personal medical reasons. And I was asked that her privacy respected at this time. So Jessie Nelson came out with a documentary last year that was talking about the amount of hate that she's received as being a member of the band and the amount of body shaming that she received and how that impacted on her mental health. So fans of the band have been sending her a lot of love and support this week. But they were also comforted by another member, Jade Thirlwall, who confirmed that the band was not breaking up, and she said Little Mix will literally never die. So don't think about that literally, but...
0: Okay, (laughs) yeah, well, certainly. Uh, Celebrity controversy this week?
14: Yeah, so Harry Styles was the first man to appear solo on the cover of Vogue magazine since it was founded in 1892. Uh, But there was some controversy about it because in one of the images, he is wearing a dress. Popular American conservative Candace Owens said, In the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time that Marxism is being taught to our children is not a coincidence. It is an outright attack.
0: An interesting perspective anyway, um, I suppose. Uh, Any new music releases this week, Claudia?
14: Yes, uh, Marina, formerly known as Marina the Diamond, released her song Man's World out this week. And in August she said she was nearly finished writing the album. So the album that should be coming along with that song should be coming out very soon. And it is an amazing new single, so highly recommended by me.
0: Okay, fantastic. What else have you got for us?
14: Uh, a quick film recommendation is for anyone that watched The Princess Switch. It was an America- or a Christmas movie that came out on Netflix last year. Might be a bit early for some for the Christmas viewing, but clearly not for Netflix. They have released a sequel, which is called The Princess Switch, Switched Again. In the first movie, Vanessa Hudgens plays two twins, and they switch lives. In this movie, they've switched it up again, and Vanessa Hudgens will be now playing a third person which will be very fun for her and very light-hearted and Christmassy, if anyone's feeling that sort of vibe.
0: Fantastic. Um, the trendy scoop is on this week, and we will have a wee update on everything that's going to be there on our social media, so you can check that out there. Claudia, thank you very much for being with us. Kirsty, uh, you're here to give us a bit of an update on what's going on in the world of arts this week. Uh, where should we start? There was some good news for some Northern Ireland arts organisations last week, is that right?
7: Yeah, that's right. So uh, last week, the Communities Minister, Carol Nacoolin, confirmed that four flagship arts organisations in Northern Ireland are set to receive emergency funding. Uh, the Lyric Theatre, the MAC, the Crescent Arts Centre and the Ulster Orchestra have been awarded additional funding support totaling almost £620,000 uh, to help them prepare and plan for reopening uh, following closures as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the funding is being administered by the Arts Council of Northern Ireland, and it's part of a range of measures from the Department of Communities to support the arts, culture, heritage and language sectors, which have all been severely impacted by the pandemic.
0: Yeah, that's going to be really positive news for, for those organisations, I suppose, in particular, and for the people that, you know, love them and want to use them. Um, the NI Music Prize took place last week. Give us an update on who the big winners were.
7: Yeah, so the NI Music Prize was streamed live on YouTube on Thursday, the 12th of September. And uh, This year, three of the awards were decided through a public vote, with each winning actor receiving a cash prize of £1,000. Uh, Sasha Samara picked up the OEA oh yeah Contender Award. New Pagans won Best Live Act and Arborist won Best Single for the song Here Comes the Devil. Uh, but the big award of the night with a prize of £3,000 for Best Album was won by Kit Philippa, for their debut album, Human. Um, and the awards are all part of the Sound of Belfast 2020 Virtual Festival. Uh, so if you missed any of that last week, uh, don't worry, as all the events are still available to view on the OEM Music Centre's YouTube channel.
0: Fantastic. And we played one of Sasha Samara's songs at the end of the show uh, last week. So you can listen back to that as well. Another local musician has teamed up with the Ulster Orchestra on a new song. Is that right?
7: Yeah, that's right. So rising international star Ryan McMullen has been commissioned by the Arts Council of Northern Ireland to write a song marking the contribution of the NHS during the COVID-19 pandemic. He's joined forces with the Ulster Orchestra to record a new piece titled If This Is The End. Ryan, who has toured internationally with Ed Sheeran and Snow Patrol, took inspiration for the song from the work of the NHS, paying a poignant tribute to those who have lost someone during 2020 and have been unable to mourn their loved ones in the usual way. The video of the song recording is available to watch now on YouTube and the song will be officially released on the 4th of December.
0: That's fantastic. We need to make sure to check that out. Uh, Lyric Theatre, it's closed at the moment, but there's a new internship opportunity. Tell us about that, Kirsty.
7: Yeah, so um, if you're interested in the chance to learn from the Lyric's busy creative learning department and also play an active role in the variety of theatre-based education projects, then make sure to check out the Lyric Theatre's new creative learning intern post. You must be aged 18 to 24 to be eligible for the post, and the closing date to apply is 5pm on Monday 30th of November. And for all the details on the internship, just head to the Lyric Theatre website.
0: Fantastic. Uh, a final thing, Kirsty, any other resources students might be interested in checking out? Yes,
7: yeah, so one useful resource to check out would be RTS Futures, Uh, For anyone who doesn't know, RTS Futures is a branch of the Royal Television Society and it aims to help students and those in the early stages of their career to learn about different areas of television and the media industry. And by signing up, you'll get access to exclusive events and have a chance to build contacts in the industry. And it's really straightforward to sign up on their website and it's completely free as well. So if you're somebody who's interested in learning more about the media industry, then I would definitely check that out.
0: Fantastic, Kirsty. Thank you so much for being uh, with us, Kirsty King there from our news team. Thank you, Lauren. You're also with us. You're going to give us a whistle stop tour of the sport this week. Uh, Northern Ireland women announced their squad. Is that right?
15: Yeah, but there's one notable absentee in two crucial games they have coming up. If they win both those games, they secure a place in the qualify in the playoff for the qualifiers for the Euros. Um, Everton striker Simone McGill won't be involved. Um, she suffered a reoccurrence of an injury. But replacing her will be Emily Wilson from Crusaders, her first call-up after she scored four goals against Cliftonville during the week.
0: Okay, fantastic. At Danske Bank Premiership, Linfield still flying high?
15: Yes, yeah, so they made it six wins from six on Saturday with a routine 2-0 victory over Glenavon. Um, they're, they remain one point ahead of Lin, ahead of Lorne, sorry, um, but the Invermen are hot in their heels. They secured all three points with an injury time winner against Cliftonville on Saturday. Crusaders are just behind them as well. They beat Dungannon 3-1 at Seaview. And elsewhere, Balamina won their first home game of 2020, defeating Warren Point 2-0, and that moves them up to seventh in the table.
0: Okay, absolutely. Uh, what about some snooker action today?
15: Um, Yeah, so the World Championship is currently taking place. Um, Ronnie O'Sullivan's in action, he's playing Jude Trump. Um, He's currently trailing 5-3 and the evening round is still going on as we speak.
0: Okay, and what have we got coming up this week on the Sporty Scoop?
15: Um, So this week we're going to be chatting to former Glen Avon fullback Paddy Burns. He's now on a football scholarship in America at the University of Notre Dame. We'll also have the QUB Paddleboard Club in the studio, and as ever, me, Mark, and Tierna will be discussing this week's local sport, such as Ireland's um, Autumn Nations loss to England, as well as looking forward to Northern Ireland Women's Euro Qualifiers.
0: Fantastic, Lauren, thank you very much for being with us. Lauren there from our news team. Uh, You can listen to the Sporty Scoop Wednesdays at 2 p.m. and the Trendy Scoop Tuesdays at 6 p.m., or your usual podcast places. This is Scoop on Sunday. The time is two minutes until 9 (laughs) p.m. Now, last Friday night, I hosted an interview and Q&A session with uh, Sinn Féin President Mary Lou Macdonald. This event was hosted by the Literific Debating Society, and we're going to play it for you now on the show uh, straight after this. We're also following another story of a workplace dispute between the Speakeasy and Students' Union casual staff and Queen's senior management. These staff, many of whom are students, are taking, uh, have t- were taken off furlough in July, they were taken off furlough in July, a decision that they are arguing was an arbitrary one. And they've ha- now had three months with no pay and no opportunities for work within Queen's. 40 Speakeasy staff and Students' Union staff have joined the Unite the Union uh, to negotiate with Queen's, demanding that they be put back on furlough and backpaid for the months that they have gone without income. Queen's are yet to make a decision on whether or not to restore furlough for these staff, and the deadline for the job retention scheme looms on the 30th of November, so the Queen's only have days to make this decision. Will they play it fair? Will they take these students and these speakeasy staff and decide to put them back on the furlough scheme and give them the back pay that arguably they deserve? We're going to be investigating this story with a special report this week. That's that. That's us for this week. I want to thank all of our guests on tonight's show. Uh, thank you to my news team here at the Scoop: Kirsty King, uh, Claudia Savage, wonderful from the Trendy Scoop; Neve McMullen, uh, the Mental Health Scoop; Lauren McCann. Uh, Sporty Scoop and Rebecca Dobbin Donaghy thank you to Amy Murray who's been posting all of tonight and Odrin Johnson Scoop Editor for clipping up our show for social media thank you to the uh, Queen's Radio Head of Tech Dara Tibbs and thank you to our wonderful station manager Hebe Lawson thank you so much for your company this evening in just a second you're going to hear that interview and Q&A event with President of Sinn Féin Mary Lou Macdonald this has been The Scoop on Sunday, na night